Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Ethics of Research. Today we are switching gears a little bit to discuss research that is conducted outside of North America and the associated ethical issues that might accompany it. My guest today is Faisal Kamal, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. His research examines state religion relations in contemporary Pakistan and Bangladesh through the prism of constitutionalism, property and religion. He was previously a visiting researcher at the Bangladesh Institute of Law and International Affairs, Dhaka, as well as a visiting doctoral student at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Ethnic and Religious Diversity, and the Alexander von Humboldt Chair of Comparative Constitutionalism at the University of Göttingen, Germany. Here is our discussion. I hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much, Faisal, for taking the time. I know you're very busy with your own dissertation, with your responsibilities, so I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the invitation. No problem. Okay, so let's start with the very first question for our listeners who might not know you. What is the topic of your PhD dissertation and how did you get interested in it? Sure. So I work on comparative constitutional law and religion in South Asia. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I look at the relationship between law and religion through the prism of property law. Mm-hmm. Um, and I study high courts, judges, uh, their views on religion. And uh-huh. essentially, my, my dissertation is about how religion is defined and debated in courts. Okay. Um, it's very interesting you mentioned property laws, right? Because when in my mind, anytime it's like law and religion, it'd be like something more controversial or something that's in the news, but that's a very niche thing that you have picked. Is there, is there a specific reason that you, you focus on property law? Uh, yes. So one is that it's understudied. When okay, we think yeah. of law and religion, we are usually thinking in the context of religious freedom, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, minorities. We're yeah. not necessarily thinking of debates that are internal to religion. So I think that was one. Um and the other was that, yeah, they, I, as far as I know, there is no study uh, that has compared Bangladesh and Pakistan, uh, at least their constitutional systems in relationship to the majority religion, let alone property law. So that was the other motivation that I was a bit surprised that there isn't much work on this. Yeah. And that's that's what you want to do as a PhD student too, right? Pick something that people haven't done. So your research is super valuable by the time you graduate. So that, um, let's ask about your methods then. So in your type of research, um, is there a specific method that you use? And are you particularly fond of a specific type? Like, are you a more quantitative person, qualitative person? Um, and which methods are you using for your own dissertation? So I look at my research through an interpreter's lens. Okay. So uh, the main difference between using that as a lens versus, let's say, a more positivist view of social mm-hmm. science yeah. would be that w- the kind of questions we ask are somewhat different. So instead of asking when things happen or why events happen, so in terms mm-hmm. of sequencing yeah. or why there's a deviation between cases, my core interest is in how something is debated and defined. So I think okay. that's the main approach that I take. So it's more, you could say, descriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's what's motivating my research. But in terms of the methods, I, I'm mostly relying on qualitative methods, but I am open to using any, so long as it suits the purpose of my mm-hmm. research. So in the future, for example, I hope to use uh, and learn computational text analysis okay. uh, and use judgments for, for, for that. 
so yeah, I would say that my my main research is motivated by an interpretive outlook. Okay, um, so in it, while you mentioned interpretive interpretivist outlook, you still did um, it, because you use qualitative methods. You did interviews as well in um, in your research, or when you say interpretivist, what what specifically um, are you pointing towards? So yeah, in terms of data, I would say it is. Um, interviews and archival research. Mm -hmm. So interviews uh, form the bulk of what I did. And I, interestingly, most of the interviews that I, in fact, I would say 95% of the interviews that I did, they, they won't end up in the dissertation itself because they mm -hmm. are forming the kind of background assumptions. Um, only very few, like maybe, you know, three or four interviewees, they might end up being in the actual dissertation. Really? That's uh, a lot of work for background context, Vasil. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I think part of it can be explained by the fact that some research that you initially conducted has mm -hmm. changed over time. And so mm -hmm. some of the interviews, they're still relevant, perhaps mm -hmm. not as relevant to answer the, the question that you are now working on, yeah. but they are relevant to the larger project. Okay. okay. Um, so that explains why so few would be actually used um, mm. to to in the actual dissertation, uh, and yeah, archival work would be another one where you know you, you you go to a library and you get your hands on a book that was published in the 1950s and no other copy is available. Mm. Or for example, I went to a used bookstore and uh, there are these books that are out, out of print, out of circulation. And you've only heard of them and you're like, okay, I will get the coffee because it's very useful. <laughs> so that kind of, that's another big chunk of uh, the data that I've collected. Nice. Um, so before I ask you more about your interviews, because that's what I'm really interested in, I want to ask for our listeners, for our students um, who might not be familiar with the South Asian context, would you like to describe a bit what it was like to conduct fieldwork in Pakistan and Bangladesh? And what are some of the things people or researchers can prepare for, you know, who haven't been to that um, that part of the world before? Yes, I actually have a fairly long list, but I will you, keep it short. Because you, you, can keep, you, can, you can talk about your long list, no problem. Uh, so I think the first is that email is not very common. Okay, um, yeah. Yes, there are people who, you know, I mean, everyone has an email there. Mm -hmm. It's just that the the amount of people who actually use email or check email or reply to email, that varies a lot. So the first thing I realized was that you can simply rely on emails as, you know, when you're introducing yourself, you, mm -hmm. because 90% of people don't check or respond to emails. Mm -hmm. So that's a big uh, sort of thing one should keep in mind when going to research there. Yeah. The other one is, of course, that we might be a bit intimidated or shy in not approaching people directly, like for example, showing up to their offices. Yeah. But uh, I did that. Like I would show up to a lawyer's office, for example, and introduce myself and have like a 30, 30 second pitch. And if they're interested, they would say yes, or they would say, here's my number, call me and what have you. But yeah, you, sometimes you just have to show up <laughs> the location. Yeah. So um Another thing, I guess, is that you have to be, you have to expect that there will be last minute changes okay. and not just for one or two interviews. I would say that even about 50 to 60 percent of the interviews, there were some last minute changes or there were instances where you are approaching people like you have contacted them through, mm -hmm. you know, either you've called them or you have texted them uh, or emailed them. And then uh, literally like two days before you're flying out of the country, you get a text saying, can, can you meet me tomorrow at so-and-so time? And so you have to be prepared for that, Ooh. right? Like, <laughs> that it's it's very normal that 
a lot of, yeah, things change all the time in South Asia. <laughs> yeah, a couple of other points would be learning the language. Mm-hmm. I think that's essential to doing any kind of research. Yeah. I, I, I actually did not learn the language before going. I didn't mm-hmm. have the chance. Uh, and so that, but I, you know, you, you kind of pay the price that you are very limited in how you can navigate the, the context, you know, the city in which you're living in. Um, so those would be some uh, some of the points. I guess one more would be that you have to be you have to take into account that things can can get stalled or halted uh, without any notice, right? Prior notice. So, for example, okay. strikes are very common. Yeah. yeah. Uh, political protests happen without yeah. like without any kind of warning. And so, an example of this would be that I was supposed to interview a very high profile lawyer. And, uh, and a former politician. And I got a call from his office uh, a couple of days before the interview. Uh, and they had to postpone it because they thought that it wouldn't be safe for me to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, because who knows how long the protest might last. It had to do with some political controversy. Was in it Bangladesh. in Pakistan or Bangladesh? Then? It was in Bangladesh. Bangladesh, okay, yeah. Uh, so I had to wait for that. So that that's something I didn't... Re- like, for example, in Canada, uh, protests are like you... You typically have an idea and mm-hmm. i think the trucker convoy protest is a good example of something that was unexpected mm-hmm. and didn't happen you know people didn't know how long it would last like would yeah. it be a week or two weeks yeah so i think something like that happens on a much more frequent basis in south asia okay. where you know protest is happening you just don't know if it's going to last like two weeks or a month or like maybe a week and um, you mentioned a little bit on the issue of language. So does uh, I'm assuming then you conducted your interviews in English, all of them? Uh, yes. So yeah? that's the only reason why I even thought that this was doable or I could pull this off. Because if, you're in, if your claims are uh, based on evidence uh, or based on uh, data that is... For me, it was easier to do this interview because it, the legal profession in Bangladesh and Pakistan is English based. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that is the only reason I thought this would be realistic that I could, yes, I don't know the language, but I can still approach lawyers and they would be able to communicate in English. And, you know, by and large, that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. But if my research was somewhat different, it had like a more sociological outlook and I yeah. had to you know, interact with uh, regular people, then uh, I wouldn't even dare to sort of venture doing this uh, kind of fieldwork because you definitely need to know the language mm-hmm. for that. So how was the IRB process like for you? Was it difficult or was it easier to get, uh, you know, university ethics approval before you embarked on your field research? Uh, it was fairly straightforward in the sense that I submitted an application. I got reviewer comments and then I consulted my supervisor and uh, we came up with a plan as to how I should be responding mm-hmm. to that. And I responded and then got approved. But in terms of uh, what the con- some of the concerns that they raised, uh, those included questions about how would data be stored and transported mm-hmm. across borders, because mm-hmm. I'm going from Canada to one country and then yeah. country B and then coming back and then there's a lot of transit. So there was there was some concern as to how that would be dealt with. Dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were questions about whether interviews would be conducted in a language other than English, mm-hmm. and if so, how translation would be handled. And so I was upfront and said, you know, everything would be done in uh, English. So uh, there was that. The, uh, there was also so the IRB also wanted some clarification on what would be the precise site of research. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to say that my research would happen in Bangladesh or in Pakistan or even yeah. to specify cities. Yeah. You have to be more specific in saying what would be the actual setting exactly. of your uh, interviews. Uh, so yeah, you, you could say that I would be, for example, doing it in a lawyer's chamber or like office or a judge's office. So mm-hmm. that's something I learned. I, I did not know that you have to be like very specific in saying this is where the interview <laughs> would take place. Um, and as I said, like they, I addressed those questions and concerns and after a round of revisions, it was approved. Uh, just a very quick note on the very first thing that you mentioned. So in terms of crossing the borders, were you ever um, worried that uh, authorities in Pakistan or Bangladesh or even Canada, like, you know, would ask for your data or would would take it from you? Or was that not a worry at all in, in your mind? Initially, I, I would say, yeah, I thought how like did it it's possible that authorities might be, they might stop you and, or interrogate you in terms of the uh, data that you are collecting. So there, there was always that, but then I think the for me, if there were any questions at the border about what I did, I was completely upfront in what I was doing. Okay. And so I guess that answered those questions. And But that, that could be a concern. And I think that is a concern as to how you transport uh, data mm-hmm. from one country to the next. And so that's why when you're taking notes, for example, written notes, you can't have any identifiable information, mm-hmm. even in those notes. Right. Um, and every, anything that is identifiable, you make sure that it's actually on the computer and that it's encrypted, you mm-hmm. know, only you have access to it. So those are the two things that you, like when you're writing, writing down notes, you have to be, yeah, you, you like you can't mention any names or uh, the location because even if they're, go through the data, like the handbook, for example, or the notebook, they, they wouldn't be able to tell what's, you know, who, they, they won't be able to identify or link it to a specific person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's some of the some of the strategies you have to adopt to make sure that in, in the, you know, if you are actually stopped or interrogated, that you're not breaching the right. confidentiality of yeah. your uh, interviews. Yeah, oh, those are good points. So, were there any ethical issues that, you know, were not in the IRB or were not in the reviewers comments, but came up once you're in the field and you're like, oh, I didn't think about it. And then you had to, uh, you know, uh, navigate them on the spot. So one uh, thing that came up after I did my tort when I was actually in the field was that the, usually you think that there are a couple of options as to how um, interviewees can dis- disclose their their affiliation or name, right? So either they would say no if no disclosure of information at all or partial mm-hmm. attribution or let's say full attribution. Yeah. And then of course you also have to give them an opportunity or explain it to them that they can withdraw from the interview at any time, even yeah. after the interview is done. Mm-hmm. But one thing I did not anticipate, I guess, was that the, for some interview interviews, I went and the person was like, you have to treat this as though an interview never took place. And so you are thinking, okay, then how do I treat this? Like if I get information from this interview, then how do I, am I able to use this information? Because the person is saying, treat this as though we never had a meeting, right? Like, so I I had to think about that and do some more research, uh, read up on some rules as to, you know, what can you do? And I think one way uh, is if this person is a public figure, for example, and if they've written something, yeah. Or if they've written a judgment and um, the the text, so it could be a newspaper article or like a court judgment, says something that is very similar to what they actually said in the interview, then you just cite the one that's publicly Public, available. Yeah. Um, 
So that's something I did not anticipate, right? People would say, yeah, treat this as though the interview never took place. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm not sure how I can do that. <laughs> um, the other one was, I I was kind of expecting it. I just did not realize how, like, this would be kind of the first question people would ask, yeah. uh, which would be people straight up asking you what your web background is, because yeah. you're not speaking the local language. Yeah. Uh, and you're saying that you, you know, you're affiliated with X, Y, and Z university. So they they want to know yeah who who exactly are you what and again I, I had prepared for that but I just did not prepare that for a lot of people this would be this would be the first thing that they would ask um, and I think you have to keep that in in mind because um, when you go to places like these your own uh, position matters a lot so in my case for example uh, I I went there as a researcher who's Canadian but who also has a Pakistani background. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing research in Bangladesh and people ask you about your uh, background, you can't, you have to be truthful. You have to say that I, I have this background. Uh, and although researchers might think that they should avoid um, disclosing their background or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even make something up. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that it's uh, in a context where they have been antagonistic ethnic communities mm-hmm. and you belong to one of them. Yeah, uh, it's it's always a good idea to be upfront and say, hey, this is my background. And in most cases, I have realized that at least for my research, it didn't actually change the way people talk to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, some research, some researchers, researchers might be tempted to evade that question, or, yeah. you know, not be very uh, upfront about their identity. Um, it, it Because they're thinking if I did that, it might jeopardize the kind of answers I might get. Mm-hmm. And that might be the case in some interview uh, interviews, but I think as a policy, everyone should should disclose their identity, especially as I said, in a context where previously two communities were antagonistic to each other and there was a history mm-hmm. of violence. Let's say, yeah. So uh, if you are Pakistani doing research in Bangladesh, or if you I don't know if you are if you have a Republican Catholic background and you're researching in Northern Ireland and mm-hmm. you're you know talking to Protestant politicians or uh, I guess in Canada, if you have like a francophone or an anglophone background and you are researching on communities that are different from yours. So I think mm-hmm. in, in those contexts, if people ask you, you should be upfront. Yeah. And I'm sure that also helps build a rapport with the, with the person that you're interviewing, right? Because you are being honest about who you are and then they can maybe trust you when they're answering your question. In certain, I'm just assuming in certain instances, right? Like at least there is some le- comfort level or was that not the case? Or do you think that didn't, that didn't really matter? No, I, I do think that it puts their mind to ease, but also, and also they, then they're not guessing throughout the interview as to who this person is. Like yeah. if you tell them that this is my background and this is my affiliation. And because see, when people are asking background, they're not simply asking, okay, which university are you working for? Or yeah. Or work at, right? yeah. Like they're asking what language do you speak? Or yeah. what kind of racial, ethnic or religious background do you have? Yeah. And so those are answers that you cannot always avoid. And I think if people, if people are asking you, you can't lie, you can't make something up. You yeah. should be upfront. Yeah. And as I said, I think you should be front precisely because there is uh there is this sort of duty on your part as a researcher to uh to if to disclose this permission because if you don't then they are assuming that you are perhaps part of their ethnic or religious group but you just happen to be a foreigner that's why you don't yeah. speak the language um so i don't think it's fair uh yeah. to, to your interlocutors to yeah. kind of withdraw this information. yeah that makes sense definitely um, so 
because your topic is religion and politics, even though you said you you focus on property laws, it is still something that um, at least I find um, is studied very differently in a secular North American context, right? Like it's it's always a very academic lens. It's always like this is how it. It, you know, we we can quantify it sometimes, or this is how you analyze it, basically. But in your experience of studying religion and politics, do you think that there are certain ethical guidelines that maybe um, in a North American educational system we haven't thought of because it's just it's just coming from a very secular background, so it just doesn't even think about other possibilities um, of studying religion and politics. That is a that is an excellent question. <laughs> I think. Uh, one way to answer that would be to say that, look, when you're doing research, at least in South Asia, when you're mm-hmm. do, doing research on religion, um, it's sometimes difficult to present your interlocutors with hypotheticals. And okay. obviously, this doesn't include everyone, mm-hmm. but there will be some interviewees who have a, a completely religious outlook. So you can't yeah. simply say, oh, let's now talk about an example where yeah. I will take you out of your kind of context. Uh-huh. And let's imagine in an entirely secularized world, this yeah. happened. What do yeah. you think will happen? And I think uh, this is problematic because for some for some uh, interviewees, they this is inconceivable in their mm-hmm. religious worldview. Yeah. So why would you entertain a hypothetical question that cannot even arise? Yeah. So I think there is a difference between a researcher who is trying to view religion kind of purely from an external point of view mm-hmm. uh, and kind of critiquing and analyzing it versus yeah. someone who is who, who's engaging with your interviewees from an internal point of view. So you, mm-hmm. instead of assuming that I will give you this hypothetical, okay, let's assume that we are living in a you know in a worldview that is most definitely colored by religion. Mm-hmm. In that context, let's imagine something. And I yeah. think that in that, if you phrase your questions that way, it becomes easier for some of the interviews to uh, interviews to think about situations that they would otherwise think, oh, this is completely inconceivable, or like this is not a possibility because you know, religion is the most important thing, for example. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, and that makes sense, because I was assuming, like, in a lot of societies in the world, or across the world, it is, it is just a part of life, right, like, you can't just separate it from the culture, or some, you know, a work, or even family, right, it is such an integrated part, it's so normal to be, for it to be a part of it, so if you're strictly studying it, they're like, no, separate it, and then analyze it, like, can it work in all instances, or no, but I think you, you, you touched on a very good point, that, yeah, it's, if you're interviewing people for whom it's such an important part of their life, it's very difficult to imagine that, you know, there, there, there is a world where, where there is a complete separation, between yeah, or, or even to think of a hypothetical where they have to think in a non-religious way yeah would be tough for some of the interviews because they they ha- and I, I, the reason why i say some is because clearly you know not everyone is thinking on those yeah, lines of course. uh but yeah for some it's uh, you have to be cognizant as a researcher that this is you can't simply go and say my question would be um, what is your definition of religion? Mm-hmm. Because for them, it would be like, this is a very kind of straightforward question. Like, yeah. why would you even, you know, why is this even a research question, for example? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. what do you mean by religion? Or how do you define religion? Because it's so obvious to them. Yeah. So rephrasing it or sort of approaching it from, from their point of view 
would be more beneficial, not just for you, but also for them in actually answering the question you are. Yeah, that uh, you want the answer to, basically. (laughs) Yeah, excellent. So let's talk a little bit more about your interviews. Um, So your research is a little bit different than the previous guests that we have had on the podcast, because you are conducting what might be considered elite interviews, right? Because you interviewed judges and lawyers, which is different from some of the other researchers who conducted interviews of what are often classified as vulnerable populations. So despite your research subjects being what is considered elite, were they, did they still express any concerns, whether it was regarding participation or you touched a little bit upon, you know, regarding attribution, but what are some of the concerns that still came up, um, you know, when you were interviewing these judges and lawyers in Pakistan and Bangladesh? Uh, so some, some uh, participants, they did not want any attribution. Okay. Um, which was to be expected, you know, that some some judges, especially, they might they might be hesitant because they uh, they don't have a lot of ways to defend themselves. Unlike mm-hmm. like a politician, for example, yeah. a judge can only write through like a judgment, at least mm-hmm. on paper, right? Yeah. And so uh, there's that, and of course, we are living in a highly politicized environment. So they not that this kind of research might uh, hurt them in any way. Uh, but they, in their mind, they might be thinking, I don't want to disclose anything or I don't want my name to be attached to this piece of information because, I don't know, it might, uh, you know, I'm up for promotion, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I will be elevated to <laughs> yeah. to the Supreme Court. And so, so, but I would say that those were, you know, those were exceptions. By and large, the interviews were, uh, interviews were open okay. uh, in terms of attribution. Uh, it's another story that, you know, it, in my research, the vast majority of them won't end up being used directly, mm-hmm. like any quotation from from the research, uh, sorry, from the interviews. Uh, but yeah, so that was one. And the other that I mentioned earlier was that some, uh, you know, some in- interviewees, they, they would tell you that treat this as though an interview never took place. Mm-hmm. Then you are thinking at that moment, but then how do I, okay, sure, we can do this like an informal meeting. But then what exactly is this? Like, is this an interview that can be used, right? (laughs) Like, what's the status of the data that you've collected from from this meeting? Uh, Because it's not even them saying, I withdraw from this, right? Like, it's like saying, yeah, this never took place. And as a researcher, you're thinking, okay, I I need to, how do you classify that? (laughs) (laughs) Did you come up with an answer, though, during your research? Did you end up classifying them a certain way or you're still working on that? I I think in most cases what happened was I had to look go through the secondary literature to see mm-hmm. if something okay. similar was said. Yeah. And then that would uh become that would become part of my background research um on whatever topic, you know, I'm writing mm-hmm. on. So since once again, because you're studying religion and politics, both are, you know, very passionate subjects for a lot of people. So in in your interviews. Were there times where you might, you yourself as a person, you know, as Faisal, might fundamentally disagree with someone, uh, but you still felt maybe an empathetic understanding or sympathy towards their worldview? Did that ever happen? That you were conflicted, you had conflicted emotion where you really disagreed, but you kind of was had some sympathy or empathy for their for their worldview? Uh, I would say that I, I don't think I, I had any sort of strong feelings at the time of the interview, because in most cases, when you are trying to approach people, you have already kind of done some research, 
background mm-hmm. research on them. And so you, yeah. you kind of know what their perspective is like. And yeah. uh, yes, you do want some, you know, interesting details to come up in the interview that that you can't otherwise find yeah. <laughs> <laughs> through, through research. Uh, that's why you're doing the interview. Exactly. But I think by and large, you are able to guess that person's uh, pers- political persecution, mm-hmm. you know, or their affiliation or their views on religion or law, uh, secularism. So in most cases, I would say that I I was not, uh, I, in other words, they, there wasn't any uh, compulsion on my part to even internally in my head to disagree with someone, right? Or okay. say, oh, I totally disagree with this yeah. person. But I, yes, they, you, you definitely feel for some interviews because they, they, although they are very prominent civil society figures, mm-hmm. But in the past, they have been, you know, I don't know, public, publicly threatened, for example. Okay. Uh, and it's like everyone knows this because it was covered in the newspapers yeah. and, you know. Uh, and in, in so you have to be a bit careful, I guess, in how you phrase those questions because you know that uh, although these are very famous public figures um, and they've, you know, encountered intimidation or, or threats, so you have to be, you have to be sensitive in the way you're asking questions, even though mm-hmm. you might, you know, you, yeah. So I, I think that is essential, even if this information you already know, or perhaps you want them to uh, present a view that you're not familiar with. The way you are approaching or phrasing it, you have to keep that context in mind, um, and not kind of assume that th- this is all. Uh, you know the the discussion that we are having is is just academic in nature, mm-hmm. right? That a lot of what right. they say, uh, a lot of what they think about or advocate for, it has real life uh, consequences. Mm-hmm. So I think as a researcher, you have to be mindful of that. And yeah, that that kind of I, I think the it so it's it's not it's more about being sensitive to the background of the, uh, mm-hmm. of the interviewee. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, in other contexts, I can see why you, you know, you might vehemently disagree with the interviewee <laughs> in your head and you're incensed by perhaps one of the answers that they gave you, mm-hmm. then, but are you still able to sort of relate to them? Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure this might come up in future research. Yeah. <laughs> so what is uh, one piece of advice, if I were to ask you, what is the one piece of advice you would like to give early career graduate students who might be interested in just conducting field research in South Asia? Uh, so one piece of advice would be learn the language. I okay. think that's yeah. key. There's just so many limitations that come with not learning or not knowing the language. Mm-hmm. And I know you just asked for one, but I would add another <laughs> yeah. one, which is... Yeah. <laughs> You need lots of patience. Yeah. Because this is something I realized. So I, to give you an example, uh, I spent five months in Bangladesh. And I think mm-hmm. the first three months, I hardly got any interviews, maybe three or four or five interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were these long gaps where for two or three weeks, you're just approaching people, but that's about it, right? Like you have nothing else to do because you, uh, you're you just waiting for someone to reply and be like, okay, I will do, I will do an interview, or I will give you an interview. So that it, but I think it pays off because in the very last two weeks, so just yeah, there were two two weeks remaining uh, during my time in Bangladesh, and I got like every day I had like two or three interviews set up, and I think part of it had to do with the fact, and it obviously this is this applies to every research context not just mm-hmm. in south asia yeah. but in south asia you have to be even more sort of patient because you you're still learning especially if you go to a place which is new to you you have never been there before mm-hmm. you've never lived there 
it takes time it takes time for you to build your network or right. uh, to get accustomed to how things are right like mm-hmm. for example learning that no one replies to emails and yeah. so you have to you have to be more innovative <laughs> uh, in how you approach people and so if you are persistent but if you have this patience eventually you know it 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 pays off because as i said like in the last two weeks i was getting interviews every two or three days um instead of like three or four interviews over a span of two or three months mm-hmm. um and that can be frustrating of course right but if you if you're patient it it you know it will work out <laughs> so what are your plans after graduation with your research once you're done what do you plan to do <laughs> so i hope to uh, apply for postdocs mm-hmm. um and in particular my my goal is to publish uh, publish more and so use postdoc as an opportunity to mm-hmm. you know bring my ideas out uh, see what people have to say about that Mm-hmm. but that's the immediate sort of uh, goal mm-hmm. basically you are a brave soul who wants to stay in academia is that is that what you're looking for at the moment like you want to stay uh, as an uh, stay on as an academic whether as a postdoc or maybe i would say that yeah i think i would i want to try that through a postdoc right because okay. we all know how terrible the market is so yeah. <laughs> maybe a postdoc is a more reasonable aim at this point mm-hmm. than let's say a you know, a direct faculty position. And so you can use that time, you know, however much you get, one or two years, and use that time to, you know, have some freedom, do the research that you have been wanting to do or publish, which you don't you don't really get that much time uh, as a graduate student because you have so many other responsibilities. Right. Well, we are coming towards the end of the podcast. So Faisal, um, first, I have two questions, last minute questions. First is, where can people find you? So do you have a website, a Twitter page, an email, where if students are interested and they want to get in touch with you? And then you can, um, you know, let us know any last parting words of wisdom if you want to, if you want to chime in on that. <laughs> Um, my email is fessel.kamal at mail.utronto.ca. So mm-hmm. if someone wants to write to me, I'm available through email. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have a Twitter account, although I'm not as active. Uh, okay. I mean, I am active, but as a, what they would call a lurker. Okay. <laughs> <Not> a, <laughs> um, so I, I basically get my daily fix of any news or political events through Twitter because mm-hmm. I just go and I, you know, I have accounts that I follow and I am like, okay, yeah, that those three tweets, I know exactly what's happening. <laughs> um, so it's uh, underscore Faisal Kamal. Okay. That's the username that I have, mm-hmm. but yeah. So if, if someone wants to write to me, I'm happy to uh, chat with anyone about, you know, my fever experience. Yeah. And any parting words? Uh, I would say, you know, the world is is changing. It's research is getting like doing research in the field is getting difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting access to visas is, is difficult. So I think one has to be very realistic in what kind of research they can achieve given those limitations. Mm-hmm. Because you know, maybe twenty years ago, it would have been possible to do research in India, for example. Yeah, but. Uh, in this context, it's impossible. So if you are if you're a researcher who's thinking, oh, I will do research on South Asia, but you have a South Asian background or maybe even a South Asian nationality, mm-hmm. then you have to be uh, sort of very open and realistic about what what kind of research I can actually do uh, without putting myself in danger or yeah. others in danger. Uh, so yeah, I would say think about that uh, because yeah, unfortunately we we are entering a world where borders are closing as opposed to opening. <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you very much, Faisal. It was such a learning experience for me as well, because, you know, I have not conducted research in South Asia just to learn some of the very basic things that you mentioned, whether it was how um, it was difficult to get access to people um, and also more deeper questions about, you know, how religion and politics might be different compared to a North American context. I will also post your contact information, your email and your Twitter um, handle in our show notes so students can find you and co- get in contact with you or can al- also lurk on, on your Twitter feed and see what you're posting. Um, so, yeah, I just want to thank you once again for taking the time. Thanks uh, for the opportunity. Not a problem. And for the, our uh, listeners, thank you once again for tuning in this month. And I will see you or you will hear from me um, the next month. Take care, everyone. Bye.